Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! I suppose that if we had the details on how the city of Enoch was originally set up, it would be as, um, uh, probably as traumatic as this civilization we're now reading about. There probably is no better opportunity that you'll have than now to get acquainted with a rich culture that is not only the foundation of uh, Christianity, uh, but it's the thing that the Jews talk about that we, are, we have to be familiar with if we try to do missionary work among them. Because the Feast um, of Unleavened Bread, uh, the, uh, the Festival of the Booths, uh, the things that um, many of us ordinarily in the church pr program don't ever have occasion to learn about, is in a very important part of their program. And they know the Old Testament better than any of us will probably ever know it. It's the only standard work they have, you see, to go by. So they spend all their time on it. They know every name, most of the genealogies. They know every place. And while many of them do not accept its divine authenticity, they accept its historical and archaeological setting. And so this is our one chance to become literate on the Old Testament and the Jewish traditions. Yes, it's identical so far as I know. Oh, right, right. The books are not in the same order. Right. But the same material. Mm -hmm. Okay, any other questions on that? Now we're going to just review very briefly here what Moses went through just to be sure we sort of have it pretty well in mind. Because when Moses came down, on the way down, he had a very uh, uh, shaking experience. He and his wife started down with their two sons, and they're on the way down on this uh, tremendous trip. Uh, he's going to go down and tell the Israelites they're going to be relieved from slavery and, and everything. And um, the Lord did say that Aaron would come to meet him, but he doesn't know where. And all of a sudden he stopped and the Lord says that he's going to kill his oldest son and transfer him over to the spirit world. For why? Because his father has never put him under the covenant. He's old enough to be put under the covenant of circumcision and it has not been done. And that puts him under the covenant of Abraham. And if Moses doesn't think any more about the covenants than that, then that son should be taken away from him to show him he's not worthy to be his father. It was a real uh, uh, experience for Moses. And Moses, is not, he's not been around this. Uh, he's never gone uh, through this experience before, and he hesitated. Who knew what to do? 
Zephyrah. Did she do it? Yeah, isn't that interesting? And why, um, uh, you see, Moses was a good historian. He was just honest enough to put in this, this weakness of his. He said, I, I, I just ought to be on the record because this is part of my life and uh, didn't handle this one too well, frankly, and uh, kind of muffed this one. Anyway, what happened to his, his sons and his wife? Sent them home. Where did he go? Yeah, he thought he'd better talk to the Lord some more. And so he headed for Sinai. And who met him there? And Aaron came. Aaron was told to go to the mount. They'd meet. They did. And they went down together. And uh, they came in before their brethren. Did they ask them to all meet in a huge big conference so they could give them the word? Who did they meet with? Just the elders. And then they showed forth their capacity to speak in the name of God and that their lives, their very existence was at stake. They could all be massacred if, this were, uh, if these were false prophets. This has happened to the Jews several times. They've had false messiahs arise among them and sometimes thousands of them have been killed because they thought this really was the messiah that was going to come. And they've tried to support him, turned out to be a phony. And this is what Jesus said. You remember in the 24th chapter of of um, um, Matthew he said that after the destruction of Jerusalem there will be many false Christs and they'll say he's out in the desert do not go out who was Jesus talking to when he was describing this in the 24th chapter of Matthew who's he talking to Jews Jewish Christians he's talking about their people the whole first half of the 24th chapter of Matthew in its proper form, which is in the Pearl of Great Price, is to the Jews. The last half is about us, but the first half is to the Jews. And he's talking to them, and what will happen to their people, and to Jerusalem, and the scattering, and that's all theirs. And some of the first passages that belong, uh, that Jesus said in the beginning, somebody scrambled and put way at the end. So it's all confused and mixed up. So in the 24th chapter of Matthew, you have it the way the Lord gave it to Joseph Smith. And now the passages are in their proper order because they really were badly scrambled. Um, now, if we had that, uh, that first phenomenon of Moses being able to convince the people uh, as he stood before them that God had really called them now to lead them out. And it must have been quite thrilling to have the word go throughout all those camps People, since they were little boys that heard, and girls that heard about Moses, who a Jew who became, a, or a Levite who became a crown prince, could have been the next Pharaoh, but he disappeared, age 40. Haven't heard of him for 40 years. All of a sudden the word goes out, Moses has returned, Moses has returned. It really must have been an exciting epic in, in history. And then to demonstrate with the rod, the hand, and what was the third one? water to blood there really was power in him now we go to the pharaoh and he had a very interesting proposition to the pharaoh he said thus saith the lord god jehovah of israel let the people go where to the promised land no out into the wilderness for what purpose have little sacrifices and um, as our text suggests there was a very real reason why they couldn't sacrifice in egypt and why this was it yeah, the very animals they would sacrifice, they, they worshipped in Egypt, there'd be civil war. Uh, you learn this when you go over to some of the nations where animals are considered very sacred. And uh, 
Uh, you think something should be done about them, but you just try. You really have a, uh, in fact, they have civil wars in India over the killing of animals. And there are some, uh, you see, that belong to some of the religions, um, the Jainism. Anyway, one of them considers life so sacred that they wear um, a gauze netting over their faces all the time, lest they breathe in a gnat or something and kill it. And so, I mean, this is a very sacred thing with them. And so this, this was real. Um, now, uh, the Pharaoh, did he recognize that there was a God, Jehovah? Would he recognize, he said, okay, I know he's the God, Jehovah, but what did he say about that? Did he know God or didn't he? No, he said, I don't know that's God. I know I knew. And he could have named 50 other gods that he knew. He did not know Jehovah. And he said so. And he said, instead of your going out and, and um, having your sacrifices, you're going back to the brick pits, and we're not going to furnish you straw anymore. You've got to get out and have the same tally of bricks. Get your own straw. And then the taskmasters received the order, and uh, that within two or three days, they're being beaten badly for not producing the proper tally of bricks, particularly the leaders of the Israelites are being beaten. And so they go complaining to Moses and Aaron. They don't know what to say. Um, Moses didn't really listen to his message uh, quite adequately because the Lord told him there were going to be a great series of plagues ending up with the death of the Pharaoh's son. He just didn't have that quite in his brain yet. And so he's perplexed, he's confused. And the people, after being beaten, they decide to go to the Pharaoh and throw themselves on his mercy. Uh, things are really mixed up. Isn't this a test of faith? I'll tell it, it, it really is. When your prophet tells you that it's the will of God that certain things will happen and you do whatever you're supposed to do, you think, and it doesn't turn out that way at all. This is when all the saints were told to plant every seed of grain they could find. Um, in order that uh, they could have a good harvest and pay their tithing. And you've got Lorenzo Snow promising them they will have a harvest if they'll plant their seed and pay their tithing. So they went ahead and paid their tithing in advance. This is what helped the church get out of, completely out of debt. And uh, after a period of very serious travail, and then no rain. No rain. So the Lord had told Lorenzo Snow to make them the promise, but no rain. And you know their faith was, they were carrying uh, water in buckets down at St. George to sprinkle on a little, on the hills of corn to keep them alive. And when that corn had been pressed almost to the ultimate, and Brother Snow was praying day and night and asking the Lord, why did you tell me to tell them if, if it wasn't going to happen? Uh, it just must happen. And uh, I think at the end of the third day of his fasting and praying, here came the telegram, St. George, rain in St. George, rain. But it came just barely, just barely. The Lord pushed them right to the limit. Well, that's part of your maturity growing up in the kingdom, to see these kind of things happen. And it was part of their maturity and part of Moses' maturity to get better acquainted with the way the Lord does things. Could you listen to him more closely? Um, this has happened to me several times in life where I heard the statement 
by the prophet and so forth, thought that it meant something. Time went on. It didn't work out quite that way, so I go back and I examine what was said. And promise was a little different, and it came out just the way the Lord said that it would be. Now, um, when they had talked to the Pharaoh and pleaded with him to be more merciful to them, was did he respond? No, you know, they not he didn't respond. He just told them to get back there, and their very lives were at stake. So here's Moses and Aaron standing outside the palace, uh, waiting to see what the good news is. And uh, they really lit into Moses and Aaron. You've trapped us. You snared us. We were really taken in on this. And uh, how does Moses then go to the Lord? In a little bit of indignation. What are you doing to these people and to me? And the Lord straightened him out and said, they're going to get free. Just hang right in there. It's going to come out all right. I warned you that we're going to be that he'd resist. Now stay with me and I'll tell you what to do. So from here on out, of course, Moses knows what to do. And so he comes in and uh, confronts the Pharaoh and starts to perform these miracles. Now this, this is fascinating because we don't have anybody today that can do this. And we are told that the old um, magicians did it by... Uh, by hypnotizing their serpents and some other things in order to make them stiff as rods. But we really don't know what's involved here. And we don't know but what at some time Lucifer has had the power over some of the elements to, to accomplish a metamorphosis, as the priesthood can really do. We just don't really know what happened here, except that when Moses threw down the... or Aaron, he had Aaron throw down the rod. In front of the Pharaoh, you have Aaron doing the talking. He's the spokesman. When the rod goes down, it turns into a serpent, all right, and uh, wriggles around on the floor, and the Pharaoh, uh, he's no child. You're not taken in by this. And in come his magicians. Down go their rods, and they're wriggling all around, too. What happened to their rods, though? Eaten up by errands. So uh, that didn't impress the Pharaoh. Well, they're a bunch of hungry... Hungry rods. So um, that doesn't impress him. So then we have um, him continuing his uh, attitude and so forth, and you have the Lord then saying to Moses, now here's what's going to happen. I want you to go down to the river in the presence of the Pharaoh. I want you to start all the water turning into blood throughout all the land. And apparently this happened everywhere, even among the Israelites. Everywhere there was blood. The river turns to blood, and it stinks, it says. It was terrible. I can well imagine. We used to, as boys, we used to go over near the slaughterhouse in Colton, California, and it was stinkerino. It was really awful. <laughs> so um, if all of that river was blood for seven days, it was pretty bad. So what did they do for water for seven days? They had to get fresh supplies. They dug wells and had to get fresh supplies. And you got Israelites and everybody saying, man, this really works. <laughs> but meanwhile, dig, dig, get some water. So we had that experience. This is the beginning of the ten plagues. Now, were the magicians able to turn water to blood? Yeah. Fascinating. And then we had uh, the next plague came along, and uh, they were able to duplicate that one, uh, that one also. Let me just get over here where we're... Now, the, the plague of frogs, I've never seen that many frogs, but I've seen uh, where they were all around you, hopping and bouncing around and uh, on the side of a swamp where there were um, 
over in Israel, right near Lud, which is their airport, um, they have a, a little swamp area. It used to be all swamp. Now it's very small. I've never seen so many frogs in my life. Uh, so that they're, you just walk, you know, through the reeds, and they're just all around you, just hopping in every direction, hundreds and hundreds of them. And at night, it's just a shriek. Uh, I went outside of my hotel one night, and uh, it was warm, and it was before they had air conditioning in the hotel, and those frogs were making the most gosh-awful noise here. So I just went out on the balcony, and <laughs> silence, just absolute silence. But I couldn't stay out there and do that all night, you know. Uh, they, they were silent for just, oh, uh, 15 seconds, and then one of them, oh, all of them start going again. But, um, but to have frogs in your house and in your frying pan and in the bed and on the table, it must have been pretty awful. And um, could the magician produce frogs? Boy, they had those frogs popping up everywhere. Could they stop the frogs? No, that's, this is the beginning of the end for them. Somehow, they're able to expedite the, uh, the polywog phenomenon. They got frogs just coming out themselves pretty fast, but you can't stop them. And so this time, the Pharaoh, when he pleaded for some kind of surcease, uh, Moses said, All right, you, you say the time. I just want you to know that, this is, that God is intervening here and it's not a matter of coincidence. You say the exact time. Guess any time you want, and they will stop. And what did the frogs do? Did they migrate away? No, what'd they do? They just died. They just all died. And so what did the people do with them? What did the people do with them? They put them in big heaps of frogs, big frog heaps, piles of frogs. And um, what did that do to the atmosphere? It stinketh. So... Um, that should have impressed the Pharaoh, but no. The next thing uh, that we get is this plague of what? Lice. Now, I don't know whether you've been around lice. We've almost exterminated them in the United States. We have very few lice anymore. But I'm old enough to remember when we had fleas and lice all over the country. Not like this. But if you'd sleep in a uh, third-rate hotel, you would expect to have lice. They get into the wood and it's impossible. You have to burn the wood to get rid of them, burn the bedstead. And they used to have these wooden bedsteads, and the lice would get into them, and somebody who had lice would sleep in the bed. It becomes uh, contaminated, and then everybody else gets their share of lice thereafter, and they get up all into the hair and so forth. And when I was a little fellow, sometimes the kids would come to school with their hair all shaved off, and it meant they were being deloused. They're the only way to get rid of them. You scrub them, wash them, can't get rid of the lice. So they shave their heads and, and work them over and get, them, get rid of them. So, um, and when we moved to California, we slept in, uh, we, we, we rented a house in, um, out of Los Angeles there a little ways, out among the cantaloupe fields that they used to have then, which are now expensive housing developments. And, and uh, we, we always refer to it. Um, we'll say, hey, you remember when we lived in the flea house? We were just covered with flea bites. It's covered with them. So we've almost eliminated these kind of pests. This generation doesn't know what it's like to just be covered with fleas, not just dogs, human beings. Everybody covered with fleas. Boy, they really bite you. And they're in the sand, they're everywhere. <clears throat> you just walk, uh, uh, when we were over there uh, living in that area, you could just walk through the sand, just, just going from the house uh, down to the corral and back. 
and you'd be covered with little fleas on the on your clothes and up against your skin by the time you got back. Sand fleas, thousands of them. Anyway, to have a plague of lice where it looked like even the soil and the dust of the ground had turned to lice, that was something. The Pharaoh said, oh, let's see you do that. Could they produce lice? Amazing that you'd just been able to scratch their heads and come up with some, but couldn't do it. So, um, what, did, what did they tell the Pharaoh? They said, this is what? This is the finger of God. This is for real. No magician's trick here. You can depend upon it. Their God is in on this one. And uh, from then on, were they for or against Moses? At least they weren't um, antagonistic, were they? And they were among those that pleaded with the Pharaoh to be realistic. He's really dealing with something greater than any of them. And uh, finally, we had the murrain of cattle. And from here on, we don't have any of the plagues affecting the Israelites. We had all the Egyptian cattle dying. And believe me, that's a great tragedy in those countries. And they send up word to among the Israelites. And what was happening up there? No dead cattle. And um, it's kind of like the hoof and mouth disease uh, type of a disease, this murrain. What? You know, we, we missed the insects, didn't we? Yes, they didn't have the flies, or the insect pests. And then we had the, um, the fire mingled with hail, and um, this was thunder and lightning and then fire running along the ground. And in the Ten Commandments, they, they, that was very effective. They, they achieved that by uh, trick photography, but they had the fire and hail mingled together. This is be, to be a phenomenon which you yourselves may see. It will be duplicated in the last days before the millennium. You may get to see hail and fire. The hailstones are, are so large uh, that will come here in the last days uh, that we, we're not sure that the figure in the book of Revelations is being properly interpreted because it's in terms of talents uh, to indicate the weight. But it's as much as 70 pounds if the weight is being calculated uh, by the best terms that we know. But to have hailstones start pelting down upon cars and houses and so forth, not only will destroy fields, it will kill people. And of course, hailstones, when they get at the size of a hen's egg, they kill people in quantities. So in any event, hail mingled with fire could be devastating. Then we had what crops were not destroyed by the hail and the fire uh, was destroyed by the locusts and they came in with the wind. The wind brought, it, brought uh, in these great clouds of locusts, and of course we're familiar with that here in Utah. Then came the thick darkness that you could feel. The Book of Mormon says whenever that darkness, whatever the Lord does to the atmosphere to achieve this particular darkness, the, the chemistry of it, etc., is something that is so thick it's tangible. How a person can even breathe and survive in that kind of an atmosphere is hard to understand. But the Book of Mormon people who went through it said that it just caught you wherever you were. You couldn't light a fire, you couldn't establish a light, you couldn't move anywhere, and you could feel the vapor of darkness. So it just paralyzes everybody. They just sit down wherever they are and cry out, and some were mourning, etc. But uh, it's a vapor of darkness that you can feel. Now, after the... Um, um, explosion of Krakatoa, an island out in the Pacific. 
a little about a little over a century ago. I don't know whether any of you saw that film or not. But um, the debris from that explosion of that island that just simply blew up was the top of a volcano as nearly all of our Pacific islands are. That debris and dust went clear around the world. And in the immediate area on other islands, they describe it as being just pitch black and uh, you could feel it, they said. Now the same thing, the same phenomena exists for three days and three nights incidental to the crucifixion of Christ as far as America was concerned. But it would seem to us that there was more than just volcanic ash in the air. This seems to have been a, an actual physical atmospheric phenomenon through the power of the priesthood that is effected and brought about. But anyway, you can feel it and you can't light anything in it. Now the Lord says, I'm ready for my last one, and now I want you to initiate and inaugurate several ceremonial arrangements that you will always celebrate to commemorate the night that I spared your eldest while I slew the eldest of the Egyptians, as I told you, Moses, before you ever came down. And so we have this feast of the Passover, and uh, it's simply designed to remind all of the Israelites, not just the Jews, but all of the Israelites, that there was one moment when they barely had time to eat, to put their bread uh, mixing bowls on their heads and put a pack of goods in a cart and depart. And it was the night that the angel of death and the priesthood that were in charge of the calling home of the Egyptians, it was the night they passed over the Israelites or at least any home that had the blood markings on the lintel. What happened if you didn't have the blood markings on the lintel? Yeah, the priesthood are using this as a sign. You see, we, beyond the veil, we have tremendous organizational structure. And there are some signs and tokens by which they operate when they're dealing with vast numbers of people. And um, um, if you were members of the priesthood and you were going through the whole area of Egypt and you had the assignment to call home the firstborn of each family, uh, this is the sign in the token, leave alone the houses marked with the blood of a lamb. And you go, you walk into the homes of these Egyptians and speak to the spirit of this child or this man, as the case may be, and say, come across, come, come over, come home, come home, and left them dead. And the, you'll notice that it says that the blood is to be on the door so that as we pass among them, your children will not be slain, which suggests to you, as Joseph Smith says, how the priesthood is organized beyond the veil and how the Lord doesn't do things with a magic wand any more than he does over here. He has organization. And that was to help the priesthood fulfill and perform their assignment. The privilege of wearing one of the priesthood garments outside of the temple is a very great privilege that the president of the church could take away from us at any time and threatened to do so a few years ago when some of the women became obstreperous and were uh, so anxious to keep up with styles that they violated the whole spirit of having the privilege of wearing this, this garment. And now, this means a great deal to the priesthood beyond the veil. And in their, uh, their assignment to uh, take care of a multitude of things where you have the adversary moving across the earth and getting people to use their free agency against the Lord. The members of the priesthoods assigned to uh, 
to those who are to be protected and helped so that the work of the Lord can continue. They often depend upon some of these things. There's much more to this than many people realize. When the, when the prophet, it was uh, back right at the close of Heber J. Grant's administration. And some of the wives of general authorities even. It was a time when um, um, there were some who just felt that there should be some definite modifications. Now, as far as the priesthood is concerned on the other side of the veil, it doesn't matter them what the modification is, just so it's uniform. See, that's what we're working for here is a uniformity, a, a symbol, a recognition. And President Grant said, well, all right, we'll work out some things. I agree, we ought to do what we can here. But uh, when it became unreasonable, then he was very uh, upset on one occasion. And he said, the saints must understand this is a privilege which can be taken away from them. To be able to wear the sacred vestments outside of the temple of God is a privilege, not a right. And it can be removed if there's a desecration of the garment. So some of us were there when this was said, and he really meant it. No, that had been done a long time before that. And, um, and, and this, the spirit in which that was done is understandable, because the garment per se, and the form that it's in, there's nothing particularly sacred about it any more than being baptized, going down into water and coming up. Lots of people go down the water and come up. I mean, that, there's nothing about that ordinance that makes it significant unless it's done under certain circumstances and is recognized on the other side of the veil. The priesthood vestments are the same way. And so they, they were a little different in the Old Testament. You'll read a description of them here. We're coming to them shortly. The temple vestments were a little different in the day of, the days of Moses than they are now. We don't wear the, uh, the pomegranate decorations and the little tassels and the little bells and so forth. None of those are worn on the robes of those in the temple. Ours are much more simple. The main thing is they are what the Lord prescribes and accepts. And uh, so as long as there's uniformity, then it's, it's acceptable. So the feast of the Passover was designed to have them first kill a paschal lamb. What's paschal mean? It means Passover. The paschal lamb. Anything special about this lamb? It mustn't have blemish, and in connection with, its, with the slaying of it and the preparation of it, no bones must be broken. And this is very significant in that all the, the bones of both the thieves that were crucified with Christ were broken because they died much faster after the legs were smashed. And so to get them dead in a hurry, they'd go along and smash their legs and they would die. But they came to Jesus. Why didn't they smash his legs? He was dead. And just to make sure, what did the Roman soldier do? Thrust the spear into his side and out came water mixed with blood. And so this is all anticipated. All of this is anticipated. There, there's something, there's a symmetry in the whole programmed um, unfolding of gospel history which has the same beautiful threads weaving in and out. And significance and symbolism is incorporated in it. And the Paschal lamb was to be eaten. How about unleavened bread? Why unleavened? That's to show they didn't have time to let it rise, you see. The leaven is, it takes time, about eight hours uh, very frequently to get a good batch of bread until we got our modern devices. Now you can 
put it in the oven, it rises fast. You can bake the whole thing, mix it and bake it in about an hour. It used to take about eight hours. I can remember the days when we did it the other way. So they, they had no time to leaven it. You, what, what's bread like? What do we call uh, bread that hasn't been leavened today? Can you think of any kind? Uh, the, the Mexicans don't leaven their bread. What do they call it? Tortillas? Tacos? No leaven. Flat. Doesn't rise, does it? That's all the leaven is for, is to give it a little, little air space in there and make, make a nice loaf of bread out of it. And when we also do the same thing, we mix up some dough and put it in the frying pan. What do we call it? Yeah, fried bread, griddle cakes, fry bread. Can you stand up so that they can, can hear you by the client? I think they'd be in interested in this. And turn around. It works like corrugated bags on the taste like Yes, sir, that's to be very fine if you can do that. Yes. 
try to get one of those. Appreciate it, Mike. The whole story, as you've read it in the chapter here, and this is all told throughout the history of the Sega, which is the night, the first and second night of this Passover, you have the straight You eat, and you have the service at the same time. This is the Sega night. But it's, it can be a lot of fun. It's a joyous occasion. The Papa, the patriarch of the family, sits down and so he's in a fine position. Now, there's, there are two main characters. May I go along? Sure, you bet. Appreciate it, Marty. All right, all right. Go ahead. Two main characters in the whole thing. One character is the patriarch, the Papa, and then the youngest male child of the family. These are the two main characters. The women of the house sort of take an honored second uh, position. They're exalted in one way. They're exalted along for possibly for two or three days. The women of the house do all of these things. Uh, they, they cleanse the house from top to bottom. And in every Orthodox Jewish family, you will find two sets of dishes, two sets of pots, two sets of silverware. The reason is that one is used all day, all day, all year long, and this is called trafe, which means uncleansed. You can use that all during the year. But then there's what is called pesadeca, which means Passover, where only. And this is broken out only after the father, the patriarch of the family, has searched throughout the entire home the day before Passover. And he looks for the leaven, the, uh, anything in the house that is supposed to be normal, is swept out. And all these little bits of crumbs and dust that soups up the little fish, the little thing, burn to symbolize the cleansing of the home, the cleansing of the family, or the Passover. But this is it's joyous and it's also very uh, sacred in its own life. So, very sanitary. Excuse me? Very sanitary. Yes. <laughs> then the Passover dish, Passover pot, Passover silver, all the things that are used for Passover taken out, is what used for the entire week. And nothing that is left or touches the is allowed to come into the home during that time. That's so Then the mother, the women of the house, or the mother of the home, has to spend a whole day, the day before uh, Passover, cleansing the home. And then the father goes and inspects Now she is involved in that sense. She's been taking all this time and trouble. In the old days, the director would make a month. Today, you go to New York City, go down to Spices, or Manchester, supplied by the box. And had to have a Passover, they say, kosher of Passover, means for Passover, for Passover. And only that has that label on it, and the old doctor could use it in some reason Passover week. And then we go outside and take it. That's most interesting, Marty. Then, uh, let's see, what else? They all sit back and they and then, as it starts to say before, the, the Papa and the Youngest, uh, the high point, during the opening prayers, the uh, Father will uh, bless the uh, wine, the bread, the grace of bread, the monsters. That's covered. This is covered with the 
is bought during the opening party. And one chair is set aside, it's kept in empty, and that's, you know what's for it? You know what they get? And a cup of wine is kept for a lot of This is it. The youngest child, youngest male child, at a very specified point, will stand up and he'll, quote, ask the four questions, unquote. I don't know what they all are. One is, why do we keep in a refining position? Why do we need to herds? Uh, why do we incorporate like that? Then the father proceeds for the next four hours during the course of the meal to explain the answers. It's a very beautiful ceremony. And in some respects, I kind of miss uh, being close to it. It's been about too many years, really. But, uh, for your family. I appreciate it, Marty. Were your family uh, Orthodox or Reform? They're, they're Orthodox. And let's see, how long have you been a member of the church now? Six and a half. Six and a half. But, uh,